thank you for your love, for your grace, a gift that you gave us that we did not deserve. You give us so many gifts and blessings that we don't deserve. But we say thank you this morning, Lord, for the greatest gift of all, which was Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus into this world, not just to be a teacher, even though that was good, but ultimately to die for us, to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins. We praise you, Jesus, because you won the victory over sin and death, and you passed that victory on to us. And I pray that in this time that we have together now, as we open the scripture, that you will open our eyes and hearts in fresh ways to the glory of the gospel, the glory of what has been accomplished on our behalf through Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you will be the one glorified in our, through our time together today, and that you will give us a greater understanding and appreciation and application of this good news through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So here at Freedom's Church, we have a lot of exciting things going on. I mean, we obviously have the building project that's starting pretty much now. We have a, a wonderful staff team, and we're excited to add uh, another pastor very soon. Um, I, I look at all the different ministry activities we have going on at the church that are just very exciting and, and very encouraging. I mean, to me, it was just encouraging to see all the children up here this morning who are, those are just the children moving into a new class. There are so many others involved. There are others moving in a new class who are here in first service. Uh, and, and so a lot of exciting ministry activity. Um, on top of that, just a great church family. I mean, just a very committed, caring, loving church family. And I know I feel very blessed to be a part of what God's doing here, and I hope that you do as well. Now, as we talk about all these different things we have going on here at the church, this morning I want to spend the rest of our time together focusing in on what is most important for a church. What is truly most important for a church to be focusing on so that we do not lose sight of that in the midst of all kinds of other good things. So with that in mind, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want you to consider this question in your mind. What does the Christian church have to offer that sets it apart from everything else? What does the Christian church have to offer that sets it apart from everything else? And I think this is a very relevant question on many different levels, in part, though, because our culture is increasingly marginalizing the church. It's pushing the Christian church out to the margins of society, and this is especially true among younger generations. Where younger generations, whether it's people in their teens or 20s or 30s or even in their 40s, are focusing less and less on church and Christianity. God, God might have some interest in their minds, but church and Christianity generally don't have very much interest in their minds anymore. And so we come back to that question of what does the Christian church have to offer that sets it apart from everything else? I think about how in generations past, when people would be going through difficult situations in life or they need some guidance or wisdom on some topic, very frequently they would seek out a church or seek out a pastor to help guide them in that. But that's not really the case any longer. Now when people need guidance on something or, or are just looking for some input, where do they go? Frequently it's social media. They just put it out there and see what do the crowds have to say? What do my friends have to say about this topic? Or if they want some expert opinion, they might turn to Oprah. Or they might uh, Google a TED Talk to watch. You know, those, those are the experts on all kinds of topics. Or they might order a book from Amazon. 
Or, or I think about how, you know, you have a lot of times in, in people's lives where they may, might use different terminology, but their soul it gets hungry or it gets weary. And where do they turn in those times? Generally not to anything the church has to offer. They're more likely to start binge-watching their favorite TV show on Netflix. Or I think about, you know, sometimes people want to serve. And throughout history, serving through a church has been a primary way to serve the community. But now you have all kinds of charities and you have all kinds of civic organizations where if you want to serve, plenty of opportunities outside the church. Or even think about how, you know, people just like to have something to invest their time in, to be busy with things. Now look at all the different extracurricular activities out there that fill people's schedules. And so in light of all this different stuff going on around our society, we come back to the question of what does the Christian church have to offer that sets it apart from everything else? And the answer to this question is that we have the gospel. Now gospel is a word that means good news, and it's the good news of what has been accomplished through Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And today I want to focus in on a passage of Scripture that explains the gospel with as much clarity as any other passage in the whole Bible. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this passage provides an incredibly vivid account of the gospel, of the power of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. But before we really get to the power and beauty of the gospel, we have to understand, first of all, our natural condition as humans. We have to understand some bad news before we get to the glory of the good news. So let's start out by asking, what is our natural spiritual condition. Because we have to get that right before we can understand how great the gospel is. In verse 1 of Ephesians 2, Paul writes that you were dead in, in trespasses and sins. So our natural spiritual condition is that we are spiritually dead. God created us to live in, in a loving relationship with him. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. They turned against him to do things their own way. And every single human since then has been doing the same thing. Turning against God. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So what we earn, what we deserve because of our sin is a spiritual death penalty. Spiritually, our natural condition as humans is that we are dead. 
And sin takes on a variety of different forms. Sometimes our, our sins are active. We actively commit them. Sometimes they're more passive. Sometimes they are intentional. Sometimes they're a bit more unconscious. Sometimes they're manifested in our words or in our actions. Sometimes they're more invisible but inside of us through our attitudes or through our motives or our thoughts. But regardless of how sin is manifested, the bottom line is that sin kills us spiritually. That we are spiritually dead in our natural human condition. Let me give you an illustration of this using this lamp. I mean, we all know what a lamp is. We know how the lamp works. Lamps do not work if you don't plug them in. I mean, if you plug it in, it, it gets power. Then it works as it's supposed to. But naturally, if it's not plugged in, it's not connected to the power source. And that is what we are like in our natural human condition. That sin disconnects us from God, from the life source, from the power source of God. And you look at this lamp right now. I mean, it, it looks kind of nice, doesn't it? But it's not fulfilling its function at this point because it's not plugged into its power source. It is dead in terms of fulfilling its actual function. In order for this to work, you have to plug it into the power source Unfortunately for us as humans, in our natural condition as, as sinful people, that sin disconnects us from God. And therefore, it kills us spiritually. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when something is dead, it can do nothing to help itself. It, it can't do anything to help itself. You think about John chapter 11, where one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus died. He was put in the tomb. He was there for several days. At that point, was there anything Lazarus could do to help himself? No. He's dead. When you are dead, you can't help yourself. You th I think about Lazarus' family and friends. They were, they were in despair over his death. Was there anything they could do to help Lazarus? Not really. No. Because he is dead. Dead things can't help themselves on a human level. We can't help something that's dead come back to life. So that's an important point to understand that when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we are helpless, at least in and of ourselves. Paul says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now most people, they don't really take this all that seriously. For a number of different reasons. It might just be that they just don't take the Bible or God seriously. But also, we look at our lives and think, you know what, I don't feel very dead. I mean, none of us here look dead. I'm thankful for that. Let's stay that way. But, but the reality is that, that, I mean, physically and emotionally and mentally, we are functioning. We're alive. We can move. But spiritually, our natural condition as humans is that we are dead. That our soul is disconnected from God. The life source, the power source uh, that we are designed to live on. And you know what? People, apart from Jesus, people can still live very active lives. Apart from Jesus, people can even still live very moral lives. They can follow the rules. They can even, uh, you know, obey a lot of the commands in Scripture apart from Jesus. But you can't have spiritual life apart from Jesus. Our natural human condition is that we are spiritually dead. And, and the result of that is that we are kind of trying to feel our way through life and we end up following the wrong influences. Paul here in this passage says that, that we were once following 
the courts of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience. And, and what he's referring to here is that when we are disconnected from God, we lose our spiritual compass. That, that we, we, we you know, have to figure out some way through life, so we're kind of feeling our way through, trying to just figure out, okay, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And, and there are different powers and influences uh, that, that influence us, but they pull us away from God. And one type of influence that Paul points to here is that influence from outside of us. I just read that passage that points to two of these influences from outside of us. One is the world, and one is Satan. And let's talk about the world for a minute. Our world is in rebellion against God, by and large. It's a broken world that's characterized and influenced by sin in many different ways. And then that shapes us. I mean, I look at the world around us and just look at just how common sex before or outside of marriage is. I mean, in today's world, if you are, are say, dating someone and you're not actively active sexually, that's seen as kind of strange, maybe even as unhealthy, as abnormal. That's the society in which we live. Or I, I look, at, um, look at just the controversy that's going on over abortion or same-sex marriage, or I look at just how, unfortunately, how common pornography use is in our culture. Or I look at the violence in our culture. I mean, you see it on the news all the time, but you also see violence um, just in TV shows, sitcoms. You see it in video games. It's all over the place. I mean, you look at our society in all the different ways that has fallen short of God's standard. And, and the reality is that society shapes people. Society and culture, it's, it's kind of like a river. That, that, that you, when we are in a river, we're going to naturally be pushed along by the current of that river. That's what society is like, whether we like it or not. It's going to be shaping us. It, we're going to naturally be conforming to the values and the direction of society. This week I finished a biography on George Washington. I've been, it's one of those really thick books that I've been working on for a long time. A few pages here and there. But, but George Washington, I mean, he was such an important person in the life of this country. I mean, the father of our country, I mean, led the Revolutionary War and, and first president and shaped just really a lot of the direction and policies and procedures of our country. He was a great guy. He was known for his integrity, for his moral character. But throughout this book, there was this glaring issue that kept coming up over and over and over, and it was the issue of slavery. That George Washington was a slave owner, and he supported slavery through much of his life. And, and, and I just thought about how he grew up in Virginia, a slave-owning state. He grew up in this culture that values slavery, that sees slavery as a way of life, that sees slavery as a right— and in, in his life, I mean, especially towards the end of life, he had over 300 slaves at Mount Vernon. 300 people who he believed he had the right to own. And I look at how that was the culture in which he lived, where he didn't have any qualms with slavery for the first many decades of his life. Because why didn't he have qualms about it? Because that was the society in which he lived. A broken, sinful society that, that, that put slavery on a pedestal said, hey, this is fine to do. And that shaped him, and he went right along with it. Now, later in life, he was influenced by others, Alexander Hamilton and a number of others who were abolitionists. They, they did not think slavery was right. 
And so his perspective on slavery began to shift over time. And so pub- privately, he, he said to people in you know, personal letters and stuff that he believes slavery is wrong. That he wishes that there was not slavery in America. But publicly, he kept going along right with status quo. Because publicly it would cost him too much, too much of his personal image and his credibility if he pushed back against slavery while he was alive. Now, in his will, he did write a a clause in there that upon his death, all of his slaves would be freed. So, I mean, he has that going for him. He, He prided himself on his good treatment of his slaves, but they were slaves nonetheless. And, I mean, he was, he was so private about his views of, of how abhorrent slavery is that he didn't tell anyone else, even his wife, that he was going to be liberating his slaves. You can imagine the problems that created for her because he died before her. That lack of communication there on that matter that, that he wrote in there, hey, all of our slaves are going to be freed. Created a few, few problems. But, but you see there's this dissonance where even inside over the last number of decades of his life, he realized slavery is wrong. Yet he kept going right along with the current of public sentiment. And that's what happens of how culture influences people's lives. That most people just go right along with what the values of culture are. And the values of culture in our country and around the world in many different ways are contrary to God's values. And then in those times, even when we um, have qualms about the values of our culture, it's very hard to go against them. We just go right along, get swept up in that stream of culture. And so that's what Paul is talking about here, about how we so easily are following the course or the ways of the world that pull us away from God. And he points out this other power from outside of us, this, this prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience. That's talking about Satan and the forces of darkness. I think it's an interesting uh, visual picture that Paul makes here in terms of the prince of the power of the air. Why, why is he called the prince of the power of the air? Well, the best explanation I can see here is that we think about how air is everywhere. I mean, you, you can't and really should not escape air as humans, but, but I mean, it's everywhere. In the same way, the influence of Satan and his forces of darkness is everywhere as well. Frequently, we don't really notice it directly, but it's shaping people, it's shaping societies, and as humans with this, this spiritually dead natural condition, we naturally get caught up in the ways of this world, in the ways of, of the forces of darkness. And then we also have this power at work inside of us pulling us away from God. As Apostle Paul says that, that we were among them once, living uh, to fulfill the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind. That we naturally are self-centered. That we're trying to do what we want. Our body wants what our mind wants. Our hearts are like idol factories. They just keep making these idols that take God's good things that he gives us and we turn them into idols. Little false gods that we look to for identity and significance and security rather than looking to God. And so this is our natural condition. And what it leads to is that we are deserving of God's wrath. That's why it says at the end of verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, we have to recognize sin is personal. I've heard a lot of people say through the years that, well, if it's not really hurting anyone else, it's fine. The reality is sin is always personal. Because it always, at the very least, it's sinning against God. Because he is a holy God. 
And he is a personal God. And so all of our sin is against him. And it says that we are by nature children of wrath. This is a, a figurative way of saying that we are deserving of God's wrath. Now, God's wrath, it's not a comfortable topic. You know, most people don't really like the idea of God's wrath. But well, we have to understand what God's wrath is and is not. God's wrath is not just him flying off the handle in, a, in an out-of-control rage, just, just smiting over here and over here and over here. No, it's it, God's wrath. It's, it's more controlled and intentional than that. It's a consistent opposition that he has to sin and evil. It's his consistent opposition to sin and evil. The issue is that when we are in our natural spiritual condition, that we are sinful and we are following evil ways and we're in rebellion against him, we deserve God's wrath. And so this is the natural condition of humanity. Every single human is our natural condition. And I hope you see here that, that we need more than just um, rehab from some issues that we have. We need more than just follow a few steps to make things a little bit better in your life because we are naturally spiritually dead. And so we need new life. We need a resurrection. But you think again about this lamp. I mean, this lamp right now, it's not going to be able to help itself at all. It needs someone to come in from the outside in order to take the initiative and to connect it to its power source so it comes on. And thankfully, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That is what God did for us. Look with me to verse 4. It says, but God, so you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what did God do for us here? God gives us new life through Jesus. And this is the centerpiece of the gospel. I, I love the, the two words that begin verse 4. But God. Now this word but, it's just three letters. It is a powerful word. It can be good or it can be bad. I mean a lot of times um, people can say something that sounds pretty decent. Then they insert but in there and then it negates everything that came before. That's what the word but does. It negates or it cancels or it nullifies or at least minimizes what came before. Here, though, this is a very good but. Because it says, but God, you were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive. And there's an interesting parallel here, here, here about us being made alive to what took place just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 1 about God making Jesus alive. We looked at this passage last week in verse 19 and 20. There's a prayer that Paul is praying and he's praying that the Ephesian Christians and us as well, by extension, would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we see this power that God exerted on Jesus. That Jesus, he lived, but then he died. He was buried. But then God exerted his power, raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him the highest places. And here in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is saying that same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead and exalt him, God is using to raise us from the dead spiritually and to exalt us. Now it says that, that we have already been seated in the heavenly 
places with Christ. And that's talking about spiritually. Their name is already, if our faith is in Christ, written in the book of life. So spiritually, we are already exalted, but, but we wait for that time when, when Jesus returns, when, our, when we will physically be exalted in the presence of God. But that is the power of God at work, bringing life where there is previously death. This is what's available to us through faith in Jesus. I mean, you look at just this power. I mean, think about Lazarus. Lazarus could do nothing to help himself when he was dead. But it was God's decision, God's power, God's initiative to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's the same for us, that God takes that initiative to, to raise us from the dead spiritually. Because there's nothing we can do on our own. But the question is, why would God do something like this? What, what would motivate him? I mean, think about most religions that try to sort out, on, on, from a human perspective, how can we relate to God? Most religions are based on things that we do. That we sacrifice, that we go on a pilgrimage, that we pray at certain times in order to earn God's favor, that we need to give enough money or need to live moral lifestyles or live by certain principles or, or fast, or that we need to you know, earn enough merit in God's sight, or we need to follow the five pillars of faith, or we need to follow the 12 steps for this or that. So many religions are based on things that we do. We must understand that when we are spiritually dead, there is nothing that we contribute to our salvation except our sin from which we need to be saved. And so Christianity says that we are dead in ourselves, but God can make us alive. And God does this because of his mercy, because of his love, and because of his grace. Not because of what we have done, but because what, what he chooses to do because he is loving and look with me again verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we see mercy and love and grace. Mercy is this idea of you deserve a negative consequence, but whoever's in authority says, you know what, I'm going to let you off the hook. You don't have to bear that negative consequence that you deserve. That's mercy. Love is the choice bring benefit to someone else. Grace is choosing to give something to someone that they don't deserve. It's a benefit that, you know what, they haven't earned it, they don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And Paul makes very clear here that it is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that you have made, been made alive. It's by grace. And so we come to another important question in this passage of how can we receive the gift of salvation? How do we receive it? Well, look with me to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we see that salvation comes, this deliverance, this new life comes by grace through faith. It's grace. It's not anything we can earn or deserve, but we receive it. We, we still have a responsibility in this, in, this, in this relationship by faith. Faith is essentially just saying, God... I can't do this on my own. I need you to do it. I receive it as a gift. That's what faith is. It's saying, God, I'm going to trust you in this rather than trusting my own merits or my own, um, my own good works to merit favor in your sight. That's what faith is. And understanding salvation by grace through faith is transformative in so many different ways. I think, for instance, of Martin Luther. 
back in the 1500s. I mean, he really ended up changing the course of, of Western human history. But, but Martin Luther, when he was younger in his life, he was a monk in a monastery. And he was very dedicated to trying to please God through his good works. And I think, for instance, of how um, he once said that if ever a monk could reach heaven by his monkery, it would be I. Because he was working hard. I mean, he was trying to do all the, all the religious rituals just right. Because he took God very seriously. He saw that God is a holy God and he's a sinful person. So he was trying to work hard to earn God's favor. But he also saw God is so holy and I am so not holy that it brought him tremendous angst and anxiety. He was scared of God. He was scared of, of being cast into hell when he died. Even though he was doing so many religious activities. He was, he was fearful. And then, as monks oftentimes did in that day, he had the opportunity to teach at basically a college. He was teaching on the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. And he came to this, this thing that had always been here in Scripture about salvation by grace through faith. And it was like this light bulb went on. And suddenly he understood the gospel for the first time in his life. The good news. It's, I mean, it's not bad news of, of continuing to work harder and harder and harder in God's favor. It's good news. You can have new life through Christ by God's grace. And you simply receive it by faith. That transformed his life. And, and it led to a new sense of joy and peace and hope that had never been there before. It replaced the anxiety and angst that he had in his heart. And so for us, the way that we can receive new life, the way we receive salvation, is by throwing ourselves in God's grace and mercy and say, God, I need this. I can't do it. I can't earn enough favor in your sight on my own. I need you to do it for me. So final question from this passage from verse 10 is, what difference does salvation make in our lives? And it really should make a, a world of difference in all kinds of different ways. But let me read for us verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now there is a lot in that verse uh, we see that good works are not a part of how we earn salvation, but good works in terms of just doing things to honor God and bless Him and glorify Him. Those should be an outcome, a result of our salvation. But it says that we are His workmanship. The Greek word uh, that Paul used to write this letter, um, the Greek word for workmanship, is the word poema. Does it sound familiar? Poem. That we are like a, a poem that God is writing. That he is like an artist and, and he is forming us. So God makes us into masterpieces who glorify him. And we have to remember that we were broken, but he can make us whole. I, I think of an ancient Japanese custom called uh, kintsugi. And what this is, it goes back about 500 years. And you have ceramic, uh, various pieces of, of, of dishes and stuff like that. And sometimes that ceramic gets broken. And normally you either throw it away or you try to put it back together, glue it together and stuff, but it loses value at that point. But Kintsugi does something different. It, it puts the ceramic back together, glues it back together, and then puts gold in all those different cracks. And what happens then is it takes on a beauty and a value that is greater than if it had never been broken in the first place. I think this is a picture of what God wants to do in our lives. That we are broken, that we are naturally dead spiritually. And we have all kinds of problems in our own lives. But God wants to make us whole once again. He wants to take those broken pieces, put them back together, and create a thing of beauty. A masterpiece. A poema. 
of his doing is for his glory. And so if we look at our lives and wonder, God, what can you do with me? God, I don't know what I had to bring to the table here. I don't feel like I have much worth or value. Know that you do. And it comes through the good news of the gospel. So we see this picture in, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 of the gospel. It's one of the most beautiful, powerful images of the gospel in the entire Bible. And so we come back to the question of what does the Christian church have to offer that sets it apart from everything else in this world? And the answer is the gospel. Martin Luther knew this. And after he came to this realization about the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, he wrote what are called 95 Theses. They ended up really changing a whole lot of things after that. But thesis number 62, he wrote this, or he wrote the true, true treasure of the church is, is, um, is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Our, our world is broken. I mean, no one really debates the world is broken. The question is, what's the remedy to the world's problems? The remedy to the world's problems is not better politics. I mean, we could use some better politics uh, that are less messy in our country, but that's not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution to the, our world's problems is not better education. The ultimate solution is not just a series of how-to steps about how to make things better. And the, the, the solution is the gospel. And this is what the church has to offer. And that's why it's so important that churches remain centrally focused on the gospel. I mean, yeah, there may be times for, you know, five steps to a better marriage or six steps to, to being a better parent or ten principles for financial stewardship or stuff like that, weaving in some Bible principles and stuff. There, there is a place for that. We have to make sure the, the gospel is always absolutely central. And I think of here at Freedom's Church, we have what we call our guiding principles. This is not a mission statement. It's not meant to be memorized. But it's just, it's kind of the foundation of who we are as a church, and it shapes what we do as a church. We say that our guiding principles here at, at Freedom's Church is that the foundation of Freedom's Church is the gospel, which is the good news that through Jesus, God made a way for us to be fully redeemed. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, we humbly receive this gospel by faith, joyfully submit to God's transforming work in our lives, and generously, generously invest in other spiritual growth so that God's glorious work of redemption will be experienced within our church family, throughout our communities, and beyond. And so this is, this is our focus as a church, that our foundation is the gospel. That always has to stay first and foremost and central in everything that we do. We have a lot of other great things going on here at the church. But what makes us distinctive in the world and what keeps us faithful to the calling is, has, is having that gospel dead center in everything that we do. But we must understand this is not merely a church topic. I mean, obviously we need the, the, the gospel to be central as a church. But this is also a personal topic. Because I come back once again to Paul's language that he used here in Ephesians 2. It's a very personal language. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is something that affects each of us personally. It's not just an abstract thing or it's not just for church. It's for us personally. That we personally need redemption. And so I pray that each one of us will receive that new life that Jesus makes available. Receive it by faith. And um, so for you today, I, I pray that, I mean, if you've known this truth and, and been following Jesus for a long time, rejoice in the gospel. 
and remind yourself each day of the new life that he offers and the hope that he offers. But if you're here this morning and you realize, you know what, I've never come to that point of submitting myself to Christ, of receiving that gift of salvation by faith. You can do that today just by saying, God, I need you. I need you to reconcile me with yourself. I can't do it through my own religious activities and good works. And if you'd like to talk with someone about this, by all means, please talk with me today or this week, or we have a prayer team up here after the service, because this is the most important stuff in the world. It's the most powerful and beautiful stuff, too, of God reaching into the mess of our lives and offering full redemption and reconciliation with him. As we've been seeing throughout Ephesians, gospel truths should lead to gospel living. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gospel. Thank you that you offer us new life, redemption, hope in the midst of our brokenness of our lives. Lord, we look at the world around us, we see all kinds of problems. We look in our lives and we see, yeah, things are messy. But Lord, we thank you that you offer us wholeness, that you offer us reconciliation with you. You offer us a purpose that transcends life in this earth and extends on into eternity. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace that makes all these things possible. And I pray that each one of us, whether this is the first time we've heard these things or whether we've been walking with you for years or decades, will rejoice in the gospel and the newness of life that's available through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that when, when Christ is a part of the story, the old is gone and the new has come. And we say thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.